Pulp MX Network production. Pulp MX fans, we're 550 plus shows and counting thanks to your support of our sponsors. Get the Pulp MX app for iOS and Android today. Save money with discount code PULPMX at btosports.com and click the Amazon banner on PULPMX.com for all other online purchases. It's the BTOsports.com Steve Mathis Show, presented by Fox Racing on RacerXOnline.com. The original Moto Podcast, featuring legends of the past, stars of today, season previews and race reviews, introspection, opinion, facts, and laughs. Here's your host, Steve Mathis. Welcome to the BTOsports.com RacerX podcast presented by Fox Racing. Thanks, everybody, for listening. BTOsports.com, brand-new mobile phone-friendly website. Great discounts. Use the code PULPMX when you're checking out to uh, save yourself money. Of course, the BTO Sports KTM team with Shorty and Brayton. And uh, anything you need for your biker body, BTOsports.com has it. And uh, thanks to RacerX for letting us do this on their site. And as well, uh, Fox Racing, foxhead.com. Visit your local authorized Fox dealer, Dungy, Rocks, and just some of the guys that wear Fox. And, um, yeah, check them out. Uh, like I said, global innovation leader for motocross race wear, Flexair, 15 vented stuff out now. All right, a guy with me on the line. I've been trying to get with him for a while to do one of these. Uh, one of those unheralded working man's journeyman motocrosser guy whose name certainly is familiar to many of you. And he's on the on the circuit now still in the form of working with the Asterix guys and, and their truck, mobile medical unit. Tom Carson, what's going on? Thanks for doing this. Hey, Steve. I really appreciate you having me on here. I know we've been having a little bit of issues trying to make this happen. And, uh, yeah. yeah, I'm just glad to, glad, glad to finally connect with you and and we're going to talk about it today yeah yeah it's been one of those things where you've been on vacation i've been away i've been trying to get you you're busy but uh uh hey you know what the good thing about your career tom and as far as the racing goes is everything's already locked down so nothing new is happening with the racing career so it all works Uh, yeah there's definitely there's definitely nothing uh uh, you know right on my racing career highlights or um, (laughs) Um, closet training for at this moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, hey, let's first of all talk about what you're doing now. You're working with the Asterix folks, um, and I know the, the the braces. You've been doing that first the CTI forever, and now the Asterix. Uh, what what exactly is your role at the races, and and, and talk about going nowadays? Well, I mean, it's I, I do a lot of things at the races. You obviously were right about the CTI in the beginning it was that, and then we introduced the Asterix product back in about the year 2000. It was our off the shelf version and uh that is what it is today it's an off-the-shelf brace that people can the average guy can go right down to the local dealer and he can walk in try it on and he can come out of there and wear the same product as our top professional riders mm-hmm. are using so that the whole asterisk thing kind of went to the retail side right my job or my position at the races is to take care of the riders that we help or sponsor at those events whether they may need uh, a fitting, have an issue with the brace, possibly, uh, maybe new padding of a telecup, right. something of that nature. My other side or other hat I'm wearing is I'm in charge of the Astros Mobile Medical Center. Mm-hmm. So that entails making sure the truck's there, the truck's running, the driver's there. I have a full staff, the doctor, the trainer, the nurse. If we have volunteers, Doc Bodner's very good about getting his own volunteers and people who maybe come to help out but I have to make sure that everything is, is up and running in place, working with the promoters, uh, Feld or MX Sports or whoever it may be for that, and uh, that we're a turnkey operation when the gate drops or the flag drops for practice on Saturday morning or Saturday night. Uh, when did the Asterix Mobile Medical Unit first come on the scene? What year was that? Do you know? Um, it, it also is about 15 years old. It, it it, uh, it was somewhere in the 2000 2001. We didn't we did not have a truck back then. Mm-hmm. But uh, Dr. Bodner went around the first year being or branded with the CTI knee brace, right. custom made brace. That was our first year, and actually even our second year when we did not have a vehicle or a mule from Kawasaki. We we just actually had a person at those at those events, and it has been a work in progress ever since mm-hmm. to having a a smaller truck 
first we actually had one Kawasaki mule and no way to haul it. We, uh, we had to put it in the back then. It was the Bridgestone truck. And then that started to become a little bit of an issue that they didn't have room. So mm-hmm. we ended up getting our own truck and trailer from the old Great Western team. And I oh, think yeah. you probably remember those days. Yeah, yeah. We had, we had that truck. We bought a new trailer. That lasted us for about four years, and uh, then we bought the current semi that we cur- that we have right now from Kawasaki, which used to be the old Kawasaki jet ski race team trailer. Mm-hmm. Retrofitted it, and it is what you see today. It's uh, it's definitely a godsend for the riders and for the industry also. Um, I've used it myself a couple of times, you know, for when I was a mechanic or whatever. And I was reading an article on ESPN.com a couple weeks ago, and I was shocked to find out that, like, NASCAR doesn't have something like this. NASCAR guys want something like this. They have to rely on the local medical, you know, center care people in the area where the race is. Like, this thing goes to all the races, and, um, you know, all the people on board have history with the riders. They need shots. They need uh, medical attention. They know what they're they're dealing with week to week as far as a wrist injury or a rib injury or whatever. This thing is uh, has been a terrific uh, thing for for the sport and for the riders in particular. Yeah, I mean it's it's exactly what you said, and and you look back and I mean Dr. John Bodner helped me start this thing way back when, so he's been there from the start. Dr. Mm-hmm. Paul Ryman, he's been with us seven or eight years. Dr. Chris Alexander, a same thing about seven or eight years. Say so they all have motorcycles, ride motorcycles. They have history with all of these riders. A lot of them, the current riders, they're seeing the up-and-coming riders. So they have a good sense of what's going on in a motocross guy's head or mind mm-hmm. that if they do go down. I mean, everybody knows that, hey, I'm not hurt and i got to get going, you know, whatever it takes. But with that facility on site, they can tell you, hey, you either need to go get further medical attention, mm-hmm. yes, you get a little bit banged up, you can go out and tough it out, or, or whatever their professional opinion is, They, it's not like they just walked in off the street with their doctor's certificate and said, here I am, I'm <laughs> right. working today. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's been a really cool thing for the sport, there's no doubt. Um, you yourself, um, when did, did you pretty much start with CTI right out of retirement? Like, when did you officially quit racing? I wasn't that... No, I ra- yeah, I raced my last outdoor professional national in 91 okay. i actually raced the last three outdoor nationals yep. i earned number 51 which i never did use that number because mm-hmm. i didn't race any professional races in mm-hmm. 92 right then about 90 i didn't stop racing i still continued racing um some stuff in canada some right. stuff in europe i i went on in 94 and started racing GNCCs. Okay, yeah, I think I remember my, those my, days, yeah. Yeah, my buddy Fred Andrews from right up the road here in Salem, Ohio, right. convinced me, like, hey, you should come out here and, and, and ride this with us. It's fun. And it was. It was a great four years, and, uh, you know, I had a, a good good success at GNCC racing, and so that kind of, that, that led a little bit, you know, four more years down the road, and uh, that's about when I... I kind of started doing a little bit of stuff for CTI from my previous history with them in Europe with Mike Beyer and Jim Castillo. And, you know, I was still a racer. Mike Beyer just started working at Innovation Sports at the time, and I started testing some products on the East Coast. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't remember you doing anything other than CTI since you quit racing. And I guess you really haven't. Yeah. I, I pretty much have it. I yeah. mean, we had our own family-owned business, but I would still get away to go to these races and uh, help out, you know, on East Coast, and then it became a little bit more than East Coast. And, you know, for <laughs> several years, it was, you know, CTI. I mean, the first professional rider that I ever had to do measurements for or tracing or anything, Jeff Emick, Cleveland, Ohio, so that kind of tells you how far back that goes. Yeah, yeah, really, right? Cleveland, one year. Cleveland Supercross. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's one of those things. That, and talking about asterisks a little bit. Obviously, uh, Jim uh, Pioneer, Jim Castillo, started the CTI prescription brace, and, and still worn by some riders out there. Then he went uh, sold CTI, developed this over the, off uh, over the shelf knee brace that you know is more easier easier to get for a lot of riders. 
And now when you look, uh, Tom, the over-the-shelf knee brace department that was sort of started by Asterix is huge now. It, it's, uh, it's, it's a massive it's thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's very massive. I mean, there are so many uh, um, options out there for the individual now. I mean, everybody, a lot, not everybody, a lot of the companies have their own version, their own line mm-hmm. of off-the-shelf knee bracing. So the pie went from one or two pieces or players mm-hmm. to now there's several, several options. So, yeah, it's, uh, it makes you, you know, competition is always good. Mm-hmm. It makes you have a better product. You can't sit back and go, hey, we, we came out, out with that however many years ago, and right. we're going to rely on it because the public demands something better or something new, and, and that's what they want. Yeah, at the height of the CTI braces, the prescription braces, I mean, I think Wyndham and maybe Larry Ward, the only two guys that, that you know in the top 50, 60 guys that didn't wear them? Jeez. Yeah, that is correct. That would have been we, cool. we, yeah, we used to have almost 80 of the top 100 professional <laughs> riders wearing the CTI brace. Yeah. I mean, it basically was the only game in town. I mean, yes, there were other medical companies, mm-hmm. but it was the only brace that was geared towards the so-called, let's say, action sports, mm-hmm. offered a patella cup, was streamlined, was lightweight, fit under the pants very easily. Yep. Uh, with that said, you know, everybody wore or wanted a CTI brace. I tore my ACL like in the early 90s, and uh, I, I went to the doctor, and I'm like, hey, look, I want to get a CTI. You know, that, that's what I need. Everybody wears them. And they were like, no, 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 there's this other company, and it didn't have the inside brace to it. It just had an outer brace on it. And um, I forget what it was called, and, and it had a patella cup, but the patella cup was so cheeseball. And anyways, I wore this thing, and then I, I, it sucked. It didn't work. Then I got a CTI, and I was like, oh, yeah, wait a minute. These are what it's supposed to be like. You know, like the, the structure, the, holding it, the, the firmness in your leg that you felt like you could, you know, it was good as new type deal. It was um, often imitated but never duplicated, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Exactly. And, I mean, even though – Jim Castillo's Soul Innovation Sports, which is the company or was the company that produced the CTI, mm-hmm. the new owners, they still produce the CTI. It's still one of the top custom-made knee braces. I mean, it is the benchmark in custom bracing. Other companies are still shooting for yeah. the comfort, the fit, the, the streamlinability of that CTI. And I mean, Oser is the company from Iceland that bought Innovation Sports, mm-hmm. they still make it. Several riders are still wearing the CTI, and I still service some of the CTI riders at the professional races due to my um, alignment yeah. with the company for all those years. Yeah. Oh, so that's nice. So you don't have to service the CTIs, but you do because you're a nice guy. I do. Yeah. I'm a nice guy, and I have a great I have right. a great relationship with the new owners at at Oser, mm-hmm. and. I've helped a lot of these guys from when they were on peewees or kids right. right up through. So why not continue to help them or, or service them or take care of their needs at yeah. the races? And, and I still do that. Now, how, for people who are listening and, and on the fence about getting an asterisk or, or maybe they have a CTI and they need to get a new one or for whatever reason uh, they want to get maybe try the asterisk, uh, talk about a little bit about how you've managed to get guys to switch from other brands of knee braces to asterisk and, and why people uh, why people love the asterisk so much. Well, I mean, the asterisk brace, the cell brace, the cyto, and I mean, even on the youth side or the kid side, it's the germ brace. It all came from the basic design of the CTI. So you you have an off-the-shelf product that looks somewhat similar, has a very rigid cuff on it, a cuff that on our off, on our off-the-shelf product, it is adjustable. So you, you don't just buy a size off-the-shelf, let's say a medium, and the cuff is what it is. You can put that brace on your leg, and you can adjust that cuff to give you the, the best comfort, the best fit, and the most protection if you take an impact on the side. So that's one thing that if you look at a CTI and you look at an Astra spray, you'll see how the cup wraps around the outside of the thigh or the mm-hmm. calf, and it goes down around the circumference of your leg pretty far. That's designed for a reason, and that's to provide strength or structural stability of the frame. You look at the stops and the hinge in them. Both of the braces have a hinge that was designed 
to mimic the natural movement or motion of the knee. A lot of people think it's like a barn door hinge. It's just, you know, one side right. is stationary and the other is part moves. But if you pick up a brace and you bend it, you'll see that that, that hinge goes, not only does it bend, but it goes, it, it actually brings it back into the leg, which is what your your natural knee does. It isn't just like a barn door. Mm-hmm. So you have that freedom of movement or motion. That sets us apart from several of the other companies. You look at the way that we secure the brace to the leg, and we have a couple options, not that we started with that at the after side, but because the public demanded, we right. always had a lace liner type deal that really secured and held your leg in there. A lot of people wanted the straps, which came from the CTI side. So now we offer both of those. And the one issue that set us apart right from the beginning with the Astra cell brace was the three-piece patellica. Nobody in the industry offered that, and until the last few years, nobody was able to do that where you cover the entire patella area. Let's say you drop your bike or you're sliding out in a corner and, you, and the front end goes away, and mm-hmm. a lot of people would hit the knee on the bottom of the, you know, the clutch perch or the throttle side or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we were able to give you an option and protect that area and to this day, we still have one of the best telecups out of all the companies offering an right. off-the-shelf product. That's good, yeah. So it's it's one of those things that, uh, yeah, knee protection is, is – is anybody not wearing knee braces right now, like a Wyndham or Larry Ward? Any no, current- I, I believe there are still some guys <laughs> who crazy. Are, are not – yeah, are not wearing braces. Yeah. Um, you know, some people – you know, they're lucky. They're lucky yeah. maybe they never hurt their knee yeah. or, uh, I mean, you look at Stefan Everett, you know, however many time world champion, he never won new braces. <laughs> so, and, and you said it too, Kevin Wyndham, Larry Ward. I yeah. mean, um, you know, those guys are lucky. Just imagine putting on a foam, a little foam plastic cup pad thing that comes, you know, stock with the, with the pants nowadays. It's yeah. amazing. I mean, I right. think back when, when I bought my riding pants, there was a little piece of plastic down there that kind of had a little bit of a shin guard mm-hmm. made on it, and you stuffed that in the little pocket that was in the liner right. of the pants. Right. You were good to go. Yeah, pretty amazing. Hey, let's get into the uh, the time machine here and go back a little bit at your career and talk about some of the some of the things you've done. When you look at your results on the vault, Tom, and and I remember, too, as a kid, like, reading the magazines and everything, like, you were good on 500s. What was the I, what was the 500 uh you know what was the uh why were you so good at 500s? I I'm not sure. I mean I the, the first year and I believe it was 1986 mm-hmm. when the the outdoor series was split yeah. to where you rode 6250s and 6500s. I I I got that Honda CR500 and and like everything like I never rode one before that. I I started on a on a Mako 400. Okay. So, so maybe that's what, you know, led me to, to go like down the road. But yeah. prior to, from about 1970, 1979 is the first time I ever rode a big bike bigger than a 250 CC motorcycle. Mm-hmm. And it, that was by, you know, accident, the bike, I broke a front wheel on my 125, a guy let me borrow his Mako 400. Yeah. And I, I won that day. So, Something about the bigger displacement. I don't know if it's I was lazy and there's a lot of power with those things, right? Or I just it fit my riding style. Yeah, but, you um, you just look at your results and there's a plan. I mean, look, the 500 class wasn't as deep in many cases because some of the Suzuki Yamaha guys couldn't couldn't ride them. But still, right. six, eight, so many top tens, you know. Um, and then your 250 results are good and they're solid, but not like 500s. Not like the 500. No, no. Yeah. Um. It was it was one of those weird deals, um, you know, just one of those guys. You're one of those guys that kind of like flew under the radar a little bit, but you know, consistently getting good results, and but not getting that elusive factory ride. Um, and we'll talk more a little bit. I want to get more into your early career, but what was the closest you came to like getting a factory support ride, even like that? How close were you to, you know? Well, I I actually got a. In 1983, I got a Honda B ride. Okay. Now, if you remember back when Greg Arnett was in charge of the Honda program, they had the A team and the B team. Right. Like Kenny Keelan, I think, was on the team at the time. I mean, he was on the A team. So I had wow. a little bit of Honda support back then. I think like Myerscoff would have been too. Myerscoff would have been a B, I think, B team. Yeah, yeah. 
Yes, so there was a few guys. Um, Danny Conway, I think, was on on the on the support at that time as well. Right. So I, I had a little bit of, of help from a factory, and in '83, mm-hmm. and then I my next, I guess, significant amount of support would have been from Team Cam. So that kind of right. I got hurt halfway through '83. That kind of got me. I lost my Honda support deal, yeah. but it let me have some support from Team Tam, and that was for a couple years with Bob and Julie Tam, and right. then when George Quay was there, and you know, kind of hung in there. And, and after that, I never really had yeah. significant support other than, you know, be and you know how it was. You're good friends with with uh, Ricky Johnson, mechanic Brian Luna for right. the time. So I had a Honda and. You know, hopefully they helped me out with Honda parts, and I started doing some Honda testing, mm-hmm. um, endurance testing, and product testing. So that kind of kept me with my foot in the door. That if I if I really needed a part or something for my bike, that I wasn't left you know hung out to dry. And yeah. I, I had had an avenue, but I mean, you that, never uh, you never paid for bikes or parts for the, all those years, did you? Or were, was it that kind? No, yeah. I. I I had a pretty good deal with a local Honda shop, Northgate Honda, right. in, in Westwood, Pennsylvania. But I mean, there were times when, you know, um, like I bought a bike and was able to sell it through them, or, or at the end, or something like right, that. So, right. You know, I bought some parts, and and uh, no, it, it you you actually had to pay m- money for things back in my day. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was there was like you know six factory rides and, and call it a day. Right, like Pretty or whatever. Much. Yeah, there's none of these um, teams that are around now. You know, a guy like Not you, a guy like you would have been snatched up and you know on a nice B team and you know made fifty thousand dollars or whatever in salary. You know, nowadays. Yeah, that but. that would have been incredible to think that you know there was the <laughs> chance to have that opportunity like that. But uh, Team Tam, uh, yeah, Honda Support Ride. Uh, people don't know Honda Support Team back in the day before there were really support teams. I mean, Team Tam, you know, uh, predates Pro Circuit even. You know, it was really. Uh, one of those uh, sort of pioneers, and you guys all wore the same gear. I think it was HRP made it for you. Um, and it was kind of the first ever real satellite team, wasn't it? Yeah, yes, it was. I mean, it was box vans, and, uh, y- you know, everybody was on a Honda bike, and, and I think we had to deal with Bridgestone tires and MGK pots. So Bob had went around, and, and, I mean, like the current teams do today, mm-hmm. and he got a Honda deal, and he got a tire deal, and he got a plug deal, and, and I'm not even sure about the clothing, but he started making his own clothing, yeah. his own label, maybe after the first year of, you know, of whoever private labeled it for him. But, and, uh, yeah, that was, they were the, one of the pioneers of the satellite teams. Okay. Who was Bob Tam? Tam? Give me some background on him. What was his deal? Well, Bob had a company that was involved in, like aftermarket automobile parts, fenders, hoods, door panels, you know, stuff like that. And obviously, I mean, I, I don't know how big the company was. Right. It was obviously big enough to start to this or to funnel some money towards this. And uh, it was Bob Pam and Julie Pam. That was his wife. They from California mm-hmm. uh, enjoyed racing, and and I'm not even sure of like who the first Tam rider was. Right. Uh, it, 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 I mean, Chris Heiser was on the team. Uh, Danny Conway was on the team. You know, there were yeah. a bunch of different guys that kind of went through there, and Alan King. And uh, I mean, you can kind of go down through, and, yeah. and I'm sure you know more than I do of who was on there. But he, uh, Jeff Hicks, he was AJ, able to, yeah, Jeff Hicks, exactly. AJ, AJ Whiting, on the end. right? Yep, AJ yeah. Whiting. So, and, and kind of the same fashion as as today. I mean, like I, I didn't. You had the option to fly back and forth to the races, or if we were in California, you know, a lot of the West Coast guys went, came and went from their home. Mm-hmm. Or um, I, being from Ohio, I, I stayed there. I stayed out in California, and um, you, you didn't like I didn't have a salary from Team Camp, right? But I, I obviously had a bike and a mechanic, and was able to go to the, to the races with them. So mm-hmm. that was a big help back in you know, 84, 85. People forget Alan King won Hangtown for Team Tam. That was a yes, he did. huge deal. I mean, beating RJ and, and Lachine and, you know, everything. So, um, 
I've been trying to track Alan King down for one of these. Can't no no idea what happened to him. Don't know what he's doing in Michigan. I guess doing something. He's so. in Michigan, right? Correct. Yeah, he's a Michigan Michigan uh, mafia member. You should, you should have went and found him here last week. Was he there? No, but we were in Michigan. So. Oh, okay, I could have drove around. <laughs> we I guess right. Yeah, I was closer. You got a good point. Um, eventually, uh, the the team kind of like just ran out of money. Really, is what the end of, end result was. Right at the at the end, it kind of just kind of fizzled. Yeah, at it. the end of the day, I mean, a lot of things happened. Yep. But yeah, that's the end result. Ran out of money, and and things just obviously weren't going well. And uh, you know, the, the team was disbanded. Mm-hmm. Box fans were sold. Bikes went back to Honda, and riders went their own way. From eighty, from eighty four, eighty three to eighty nine, you rode Hondas. Every, just That's Hondas. Correct. That's it. Hondas. Yeah. Never, never uh, got another ride with it. Like another, never. No other manufacturer ever tried to get get you more bikes or more parts or more deal. Or you just loved riding red. No, I, I was pretty much a red guy, and I mean, I I, I liked the bike. And mm-hmm. Oh, they were pretty well, good too back then. They, they were very good back then. <laughs> I mean, the, the my eighty six CR five hundred, and I, you know. You, even though I liked the 500, like I never changed anything on that motorcycle. Mm-hmm. I never changed the forks. I never changed the shock. I never even took the motor apart the entire <laughs> national season. So that kind of makes you a loyal Honda fan yeah. rider yeah. to know that right out of the box, this bike is really good. I like it. And then starting to do the Honda endurance testing right. and and the development, you you saw how long you could run a chain in sprockets or how long the clutches last or mm-hmm. the piston. And uh, I, 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 like I said, I was a fan of Honda, and I had a good relationship with the Honda shop back in North in uh, Westford, Pennsylvania. So I, I remained red. You got a sixth place in, at the Lake Sugar Tree in 87, 500s, of course. Uh, you got a bunch of eights. Um, I mean, is Lake Sugar Tree your best ride ever? Do you think, or was there a better one where you had some heartbreak go on? Or I mean, obviously that's that's an that's an awesome finish. But no, that uh, that was a pretty that was like that was the first time I ever got my bike impounded. I don't I'm not sure what my moto finishes were. Uh, ten five, I, ten five, ten five. Yep. Yeah. So that was a pretty good like that kind of day made me realize that. And I don't know if it was the second motor or the first that mm-hmm. I was leading and I got passed by RJ and I got passed by Stanton. But then I was able to kind of hold my own for a while. Right. And then Jeff Ward passed me. So that, you know, I kind of hung there for a minute and I, w- I passed him back. And that's kind of a confidence inspiring when you're like, hey, I just passed Jeff Ward back. Right, right. That I'm like, you know what? I still fell off the pace because I, I mean, right then I knew I wasn't in good enough shape mm-hmm. to run that pace. So that made me go, all right, hey, you're fast enough. You can ride the bike, but you need to train or ride or practice more or, mm-hmm. or you know, do something to get a little more endurance because it wasn't back in that day. It wasn't or isn't like it is today where you have a trainer and an eating program and a, and a whatever. I, I had a Ford van and, and probably was going around myself, and you know, I I lived into McDonald's drive drive through. So right, right. Um, not a lot of Supercross races. What what for? What was the reason behind that? Uh, be, being from Ohio, yeah. I I would ride the Florida Winter Series. Yeah. I didn't go out to California really to to do the Supercrosses. Mm-hmm. I would I would start when back in that time or that time the series the first East Coast series would either be. Like Atlanta, or I think one time I went to Houston yeah. and started down there. Um, so that's kind of how or why I didn't do a whole lot of supercars. So I rode Atlanta and Daytona and Pontiac, and uh, I rode Kansas City, which, you know, that might even have been a one-off. That actually is where I got my Honda, the day I got my Honda support ride, because I was on, on a Mako 250 in 1982, and I won my heat race. Uh-huh. And Greg Arnett was like, I need to talk to you. <laughs> nice. and I'm like, yes, I want to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, right? Um, yeah. and, and by the way, Greg Arnett, go on to form Arnett sunglasses and do pretty well for Correct. himself, too. Um, Did very well for himself. Um, Still is today. Yeah. Yeah, that that was back, like, to the, the, the Transcal races in Cali and the Florida Winter Series that you did. I mean, they, they paid well. They were like mini nationals, you know, week yes. in and week out, weren't they? Yes, they were. Um, so, I mean, we would have, 
and, and I never got to go to a trans cow or whatever that series was out right. there, but the Florida winter series, it, there was a, you know, there were a lot of top names there. And like you said, you got, there was a good paycheck for the weekly events. There was a nice little check if you won the series at the end. So, you know, I, I stayed on the, on the East coast um, for several years. How was your relationship with, uh, obviously you wrote Honda forever and you talked about being friends with Lunas, uh, RJ Stanton, uh, Mickey Diamond, these dudes. I mean, w- was it pretty good? Did you ri- get to ride with them during the week? Uh, you know, that kind of stuff. My, my relationship with Ricky Johnson was very good back then. Mm-hmm. It still is today. I mean, Jeff Stanton being from Michigan. So we were being an East coast boy. Right. I, I, I knew Mickey. I, I mean, obviously we were friends. Yeah. I never really got to hang out that much with Mickey in the United States. I did when we started going to Europe. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I never really got to ride with those guys. The only guy I got to ride with, and, and I made the mistake of not taking advantage of my opportunity to ride and train and stay with, was Bob Hanna. Oh, okay. He he, he asked you to, and you just never really? Well, my first professional Supercross ever, 1982, mm-hmm. in Atlanta, on a Mako. I muddy, snowing, crazy weather. Mm-hmm. I It came down to the last corner, last lap. I ran Hannah off the track. I qualified <laughs> fourth. Yeah. Hannah had to go to the, uh, to the semi. I sat on the curb in front of my pits. He came up and he MF'd me and <laughs> who do you think you are and, you know, the whole right, deal. Right. And, like, George Quay had to, like, escort him away from there. Right. But at the end of the night, he came, he shook my hand, and he said, hey, I, you're more than welcome to come to my house someday and whatever. And that kind of led to I got to go to Sun Valley yeah. the following year. And, and I that's a mistake that I know that I made in my young career was I got to go or I had the opportunity to go hang out at Bob's house, but I didn't. Take make the best of it. I should have stayed there more, or I should have rode more with right. him, and and you know learn and learn from him. This was uh, this was eighty four, eighty so eighty three, eighty four. I think. Yeah, yes. so I mean, Hannah was un- unbelievable. He didn't win any titles on a Honda, but he was fast, winning tons of races. Um, yes. What was his practice routine like? <laughs> I've heard some stories running. Well, and, I mean, the, yeah. the practice tracks were. First, you had to be able to get to the practice track because <laughs> you rode up or you climbed these mountains in Sun Valley. And I remember the first time I, the only times I was there was we were riding kind of up like a dirt road. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden we turned and we went up over this mountain <laughs> and he made it and I made it and Jeff Hicks didn't make it. And I don't remember who else. Right. And he's up there and he's like, hey, you're the only one that ever, uh, you're the only other one that's ever made that hill. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. Oh, right on. And then, then the track was on the side of this mountain. Obviously, there was never a shovel, a dozer, mm-hmm. no grading. And he just, he literally went around there like there were no bumps. Well, I found all the bumps. Yeah, yeah, really, right? So, oh, man. So that tells you how good he was at doing that. And then he would run on the trails and, yeah. and uh, you know, that, that whole training, I'm thinking, why is he going running? You know, I'm thinking, let's just go riding. But he knew that you had to be in shape and he wasn't shape. So. Right. Right. Yeah. I heard stories. Same thing about his tracks. Yeah. There's goat trails and they're just goat rough trails. and just whatever. You would just pound out laps day after day. Pound out laps. <laughs> There'd be rocks and just giant sand woods and, mm-hmm. you know, boulders and stuff. And you're just like, not only did you have to know how to ride the bike, and then you had to know how to, like, make the bike work over all that stuff and then, you know, get to the track first right. of all. And then when you would leave, you would go back down that same mountain. And, <laughs> I mean, it was a job just going down that thing. Right. I mean, he would shut the motor off and just coast down, and it was a job. Like, your arms would be tired because you were holding yourself back yeah, on the yeah. handlebar yeah. by the time you got to the bottom. Oh, jeez. Yeah, and he's on a works Honda, too. You're on a production yes, bike. he was. <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the best best bike you ever rode? I mean, the 86 CR500, maybe? I, I got to say the 86 yeah, CR500. Yeah. yeah, even though the 87 had a rear disc and a little, I think it was a little slimmer and everything else, but 86. Now, I, I even remember in 87 taking the forks 
off of my 86 or from an 86 and putting on the 87 because everything about that 86 year just mm-hmm. worked for me. Right. Um, also, too, jeez, uh, um, Tom, how many, how many trips to Europe did you go to race motorcycles for money? A, lo- a lot. <laughs> I mean, that when you kind of say the winter series in Florida – I mean, I did that for several years, yeah. but then I found out about racing in Europe. Right. And Mike Byer and I ended up going to Europe in 80, 1985, I believe. Okay. And I ended up racing. Like, I don't believe I raced a winter series in Florida or the complete series after about that time. Right. Maybe 84, because... All of a sudden, I found out what Holland Cross or Hard Cross was. Yeah, the, there's a feature in the new Racer X a couple of issues ago now about you and Mike Byers' adventures, and let's touch on that a little bit. So it's in a velodrome. These things are in velodromes mostly, concrete everywhere, wooden jumps, and they're popular. I've watched them on YouTube. Tons of fans. Yeah, I mean, they would fill the place up. I mean, it, when you look <laughs> back now, it was the start of Enduro Cross. Right. I mean, you yeah, ran yeah. up and down the steps. You ran in the basement. There were wooden jumps. There were wooden whoops. I mean, whether the whoops were built out of the, the oak planks or, I mean, I was in Denmark. They were railroad ties. They screwed the railroad ties. I mean, the square railroad <laughs> ties right to the floor. Yeah. And, uh, you know, every kind of imaginable surface, they were on top of hockey rinks. So you had the condensation from the ice underneath you had to deal with. Right. If you if you got gas or water on the track, that just made it like a skating rink. So Mike and I, we, we figured out that whole system, and and we rode on a train from Holland to Stuttgart and kind of put a plan together. Mm-hmm. And you know, that was a great section of my career for until about ninety two or ninety three. And you uh, would you you just run slicks, right? No, you had to run. Oh, a, you- you had to have four millimeters of a knob on okay. your tire. So a trials tire so, or something, yeah. Well, some guys ran trials tires or some guys kind of ran the dual sport tires. Mm-hmm. And then some guys were shaving them down. Wow. You, know, you, you would try everything imaginable to to get the better traction or get the start or, you know, what worked. But would you, would you, you, you go ahead? No, I'm saying you had to have at least four millimeters yeah. of rubber on your tire. Would you bring over uh, suspension or anything? I never brought any suspensions <laughs> like that. Like Mike Byer would bring stuff and put it on his bike. And yeah. I mean, you got to think there were, yes, there were whoops, but there were no ruts. There were yeah. no braking bumps. Yeah. I mean, it, it was wooden jumps and big hits. And, and uh, the, the biggest thing was gearing, tires, mm-hmm. and having a really good or easy rideable motor. Right. Yeah. And, uh, how bad did you crash? What was your worst crash on, on the concrete? Was there one? Oh, absolutely. I, <laughs> I, I'm not sure the year in Munich. Mm-hmm. I was going around the velodrome, and I was lapping a rider. He crashed, took my bike, or he got together. Yeah. So I'm sliding on the velodrome, slid down. And it, for people who don't know what a velodrome is, it's yeah. a bicycle racetrack. It's banged. So I slid down the banking without the motorcycle into the face of a jump, uh, which if you would. Think the face <laughs> right. of a dirt jump, yeah. no big deal. Right. But this is a straight down, bolted to the floor. That's how I hurt my. That's the first time I ever hurt a knee or got hurt or hurt my knee. Oh, uh, um, yeah, people. Yeah, you, so you run the inside and you do the jumps and the whoops and everything else, and then you. Uh, inevitably, on some part, you get on a velodrome and you just start grabbing gears. Grabbing <laughs> gears. You're going and around. There, were some, there are some of the racetracks, the bigger velodromes. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could get a, a 125 and 6 gear going around there to where when it G'd out going around that velodrome, you, you could sometimes feel like the foot peg or something, like dig into the yeah, wheel. Yeah, Oh, man. Um, what, were you, what was your start money for this kind of stuff? Like, what were you guys pulling well, down? It just depends. It would depend on whether, like the first year we were over there, we negotiated to come and go from Europe. Like, you know, I, I went to, we, we started in Dortmund. That was our, 
Mike and I's first ever race, and then we got invited to Stuttgart. So the promoter, he paid our flight, mm-hmm. he paid us some start money, maybe 500 to $2,000. It, it varied. So, and then you won your per, all your purse money, and you know they put you up in a hotel. Right. Well, then it led to Mike and I's bright idea on the train to let's stay over here, let's do this as a team, mm-hmm. let's be the USA guys where we didn't have to have flights every week right. so we could get more money. And uh, so we kind of had our own little program. We were kind of the rider, manager, all in <laughs> one, figuring out, let's make the best of this. And, uh, too, I saw I, the one I saw on YouTube, Vandenberg's Racing, world champion. Uh, Lachine, is that one of these things? Um, um, so, yeah. Lachine was definitely at the later part. Yeah. But, I mean, Harry Everts. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I met him there. He was racing the hard cross at the time. Mm-hmm. So Heinz Kindergartner, he raced. I, I raced with him several times. Got in a big crash with him in Munich one year. Yeah. Um, so you can go back. Pekka Vekona raced some hard cross. Oh, Pekka, back yeah. at the time. Yeah. I just saw Alan Pe- Lejeune, I just saw Pekka. Suzuki rider. I just saw Pekka in Finland in the fall. He yeah. uh, apparently still likes to have a really good time. So. Yeah, I think he still likes to have a good time. Yeah, yeah, no, that's what they're saying. Yeah, yeah, Pekka, yeah. Pekka lives his life very, very yeah, much. He does. <laughs> um, hey, let's take a commercial break here on the uh, BTOsports.com Racer X podcast. You can, uh, uh, with, with Tom Carson, listen to these commercials from Race Tech and DirtCheapHelmets.com and uh, get yourself some suspension and some Dirt Cheap Helmets. And we'll be right back with, uh, with Tom Carson. Hey, thanks for listening to the BTOsports.com Racer X podcast presented by Fox Racing. Race Tech people, Racetech.com. These guys have been in business for over 30 years, supplying racers, riders, and tuners with factory-level suspension to everyday racer. There's a lot of top suspension guys in the pits that got their start with Race Tech. Trust me on this. There's more than a few guys that have learned underneath Paul Feed and gone on to, uh, to great things. Paul Feed, the original suspension guru. I guarantee you, eh, probably 82.7% of you people listening to this podcast need some sort of suspension work. Whether it's uh, just a simple oil change with new bushings and seals, give your bike some love. Whether it's the right spring rate for your weight and or speed, or maybe you just need some revalving on the machine to uh, help you uh, take first place in that Chicken Licks Raceway. Something something uh, on your bike needs attention for Race Tech. I guarantee you. Freeze, Gilmore, some of the guys just using uh, Race Tech, Privateer Proven. They work with uh, Ben LeMay also. They're back with Ben LeMay. And uh, they offer a full line of Racetech high-performance springs. These springs are called high-performance because they're extremely lightweight for their rates and feature the tightest tolerances in the industry. You want to save 10% at uh, Racetech? Go to Pulp MX 2015 when you order. You can save 10% at Racetech.com. And they're uh, proud sponsors of this podcast, and we thank you guys. All right. Back to the show. DirtCheapHelmets.com is dedicated to protecting your head and your wallet. The site is hands down the coolest and easiest to use in the helmet world. DirtCheapHelmets.com is the one-stop shop to get helmets for you and everyone you love without breaking the bank. We have helmets for our grand opening starting at $40 and that includes free shipping. These are all new helmets that we get a great deal on and pass the savings on to the customer. This includes free shipping on all helmets and a no-hassle exchange policy. We have a wide range of brands including Fly, HJC, Chewy, G-Max, and more. Podcast customers can get 5% off these already smoking good deals by using promo code RIDERX. All right, and we're back. BTOsports.com, RacerX Podcast, presented by Fox Racing. The great Tom Carson, 500 specialist, Woodcross specialist. Um, what was the most money you ever made in a year as a, as a privateer guy, as a working man's motocrosser? I mean, with these Euro um, races and everything else, you probably were killing it some years. Well, you're saying killing it, but it, it's not. Yeah, I mean, we. I was lucky to make a living. Yeah. But back then, thinking, you know, we we were lucky to put together, like with the hard cross series. Yeah. And doing some nationals, you know, that's when when Honda had a bonus program. I mean, we we were lucky to be, to to break the twenty thousand dollar mark. Really? Oh man, I yeah. still thought it would be better than that. No, um, no, it wasn't better than right. that. People think that you know you make you get rich, but but um, oh. I, I mean, you know, some years maybe a little bit more. Yeah, I yeah. mean, Mike won the championship there, so he got a little bit of a bonus, but right. but probably under thirty thousand dollars. 
Also, too, traveling in Europe back then is not like now. It's it, That was rough. It was much rougher. No, and people have no idea. I tell people now that I am lucky or fortunate that I that I went as much as I did because the young people now have no idea that there were borders. There was different yeah. money. There were communist countries still there. I mean, there were guards with machine guns, and you were you were allowed in and maybe not allowed in. And I mean, you could get your car stopped and searched, and you know we mm-hmm. we went through that. And you had. Like there were times when you maybe had five different currencies in your pocket because <laughs> right. you started in, you were in, uh, in Germany, and then you know if you went to the east, like to go to Berlin, you had to get a, you had to go through East Germany. Then maybe you were in Holland or Belgium. Everything yeah. had a different currency, so you had all these little coins. Like I have coins from every country back then because sometimes you couldn't trade your coins back in right. for, for the hard currency or paper money. Yeah, I go now, and uh, I got the internet. I've got uh, my cell phone works. Um, I can watch uh, my hockey games and, and and motocross races on my phone. <laughs> it's a little different. <laughs> uh, it's a, it's really different. What was this? I can tell you the, the probably one of the funniest stories mm-hmm. was Mike and I we we went, we were at the Vienna uh, Hard Cross, mm-hmm. and this would have been in would have been in '96, I think the Olympics were in Albertville, France. Mm-hmm. We we had to go to Albertville to do a measurement for CTI. We both had, I mean, a ton, not a ton of money, but back then it was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. We get to France. We can't get any French currency. We can't figure out how to use the phone, and we didn't have cell phones. <laughs> we had no idea how to get a hold of anybody, and we couldn't even buy something to eat or drink yeah, yeah. because we had all the wrong money right <laughs> that doesn't happen like that nowadays no no there's no doubt right um did you and mike ever get into it i mean obviously you guys are pretty close in speed and you're traveling buddies but you know how these things work any of these hard cross uh, contact uh, happen between you two absolutely <laughs> i mean it's bound to i mean i we were in dortmund in germany yep i i, I got the whole shot going down the track and they had a little bump in the track right off the start i went over the bump and the next thing i know there was a bike cart wailing obviously takes me out right and you know when you gather up all the pieces i was on the ground fire was on the ground (laughs) so we get going however many laps later i mean we kind of there's some people are jammed up in the corner i get around to get around it i go around the next corner next thing i see there's a bike coming through the air (laughs) and uh it takes me out it's Mike's bike because he couldn't stand the fact that I got around the jam up and he didn't, you know, clutch went out and bike went flying. And, oh man. And yeah, you just, I mean, now I look back at it and laugh, but I'm like, I remember telling him, Mike, you are my worst nightmare. <laughs> Funny. Um, good stuff, stuff though. Yeah. Hey, obviously me being Canadian, uh, I saw you a ton up there, um, over the years, you, Chris Morgan, uh, you oh, wrote yeah. for him a lot, Kit Kat and Team Tide. And, and I remember Montreal Supercross 86, uh, you were up there. I think you had a pretty good race. It was in the mud uh, one night. You won Montreal Supercross one night. And, and as Rob Bidas likes to tell me, you also won the quads, I think, the same night. So uh, you, had a, you had a lot of, I, I, a lot yeah, of success. I did win yeah. on the quad, but I didn't win on the same night. Oh, okay. So All right. I thought it was the I mean, same that's night. A cool, yeah, that's a cool thing. I wish I could take ownership, but right. I did win on a quad there. But uh, <laughs> Why it, are you it, racing a quad at Montreal? <laughs> well, you know. They paid you, I, uh, they actually paid you some money, and you said sure. <laughs> they paid me money. I had the quad here at home. I. It's kind of crazy that I would actually trained during the week on the quad mm-hmm. instead of riding the motorcycle <laughs> because if, if I could hold on to that quad for 20, 30 minutes, yeah. I really could ride my bike because, you know, four wheels, two wheels, all the bumps, and uh, I could do both of them at the same event. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, what you know, I enjoyed riding that. What year did you win the bikes, Montreal? Trying to th- I'm trying to think too. I, I don't. I thought. I thought maybe you didn't. I thought. I thought you'd won one one year on a bike. One of those years. No, I, I never won on the motorcycle. I won. Oh, on the okay. Quad. All right. Okay. I thought you won on the right, motorcycle. That's what I'm too. saying. I won in '88 on the quad, and '80. I won in '88 on the quad in Montreal, '89 in Toronto. Um, 
How many times did you go up to Canada? Did you race any nationals in Canada? Um, or was it all just uh, Supercross? Ma- mainly the, the Supercross and the indoor. Yeah. I, I do believe I went to one out one national. Mm-hmm. At um, I mean, it rained and rained and rained, and I, <laughs> I'm sure I didn't do any good because I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> right, right. But, um, you, uh, yeah, you, I, think you, I think I saw you in Calgary one year in the mid-'80s. I was in Calgary. Yeah. Um, you know, Vancouver back then. I, I was in Calgary at the Supercross the year that the lights went out and it snowed. And it snowed. On the yeah. Same day. yeah, yeah, I remember that. I remember that because these were the only, growing up in Canada, we had the Carlsbad USGP on TV and then we had like two, two Canadian Supercrosses on TV and we just waited for them like they, like it was like no other. So Exactly. Yeah. Um, hey, and also, also too, um, I'm a big fan of rollerball, obviously. Um, growing up, he was my childhood hero. What was he like to race against? I mean, everybody's got a rollerball story. Um, I mean, and, and I as well, because obviously I, I raced the Supercross, and that's back when it was in, at the C&E Stadium, I think it yep. was. You know, I thought the one year, maybe it was 86, the last year it was at that stadium. Mm-hmm. It was muddy. I was leading, and I thought, man, there's a chance, you know, I can win this thing. Right. And, and the rollerball passed me. Yeah. I got second again. <laughs> like, I got second three times at that at that stadium. Right. You can't beat the rollerball. Not in Canada. Very no, rare. he was, he was yeah. good. I mean, I, he was tough. He was hard to pass. I mean, he would pass you at whatever it costs. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, I don't have, like, I don't have any of the bad stories. Yeah. I'm straight up racing against the guy and, um, you know, much respect to him because he, he was a bad dude up there. He was another dude. He got a couple podiums and 500s at U.S. Nationals. Yeah. Um, People forget about that, but um, was there a, a, winning the quad? What was that like? Who'd you race against? Did you just check out? Was it? What was that like? Um, well, you know what? There actually was a couple Canadian brothers. They they were the Desarmo brothers. Okay, that were, were pretty good on the quads. <laughs> um, but I mean, I I, I yeah. actually rode that quad pretty good because right. I I was able to kind of use the motorcycle technology. You know, step on the brake, drop the front end, right, right. a little bit of that to uh, to control that thing. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I never got to race Gary Denton heads up, but I, I wish I could do that because, you know, every time I see Gary, and for those who don't know, you know, he was he was like the rollerball on the quad, yeah. you know, however yeah. many times champ. The Chino and, Charger. Yeah, Chino, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, he'll let you know that he's the multi-time champ. He uh, he came up to Winnipeg, where I'm from. I don't think you ever raced in Winnipeg Arena Cross. No, no I didn't. But uh, it was always Arena Cross, never never the Supercross. And um, he came up to Winnipeg, and we were in charge of taking him riding. So I don't know how that happened. Like somehow our club put us in charge, and he raced the quad and the bike in one night in Arena Cross, and uh, yeah, won the quad, got fifth or sixth in the bikes or whatever. And uh, so he he also did the uh, did the hat trick. Um, Double duty. Yeah. Yeah. The only Arena Cross I ever rode in Canada was Riviere de Loup. Oh, I, I've seen, there's videos of that on YouTube too from the early nineties also. So, well, it was probably because they were the one, one places that they had that a, a semi trailer for a, a takeoff ramp Yep. and that thing made you, you thought you were going through up to the roof and then drop. <laughs> I, I do remember that about that. That place. was a Canadian staple. We all had that. The semi, I, I talked to guys now and they, they can't believe it. I'm like, yeah, you, that was the take. That was the whole tabletop. It was great. You didn't need yeah. to use dirt. <laughs> yeah, you did, and they never needed to grade it because it was all it stayed consistent. Yeah, exactly right. Um, yeah, and then uh, also too uh, uh, with Chris Morgan, you had Tide, you had Kit Kat. Maybe, maybe you were a Jolly Rancher guy. There was always something weird yeah, going a- on. Absolutely, exactly. We had several right. outside sponsors. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tide being the best one uh, for the for myself and the team. I mean, they had bonus money and. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom had Tide soap for years, but uh, yeah. you know, we had the Kit Kat and the and the Jolly Rancher, and um, I right. mean, there was a chocolate bar in there. So, <laughs> yeah, we had some pretty neat little deals to to come or go to Canada. Hey, looking back on it all, um, look, you didn't have a Ricky Johnson type of career and, and and make all this money, but you want to talk about life experiences for Tom Carson racing motorcycles? I mean, what a what a career, kind of like what a what a bunch. I mean, again, maybe it doesn't help your bank account, but you've certainly uh, done a lot in your life. No, I, I that's what I tell. No, I, I that's what I tell. I mean, whatever caused me to 
to go to Europe for the first time and then to venture to Canada, mm-hmm. those experiences, I mean, those were life-changing. I can never do, and people today aren't, are never going to be able to experience that. Mm-hmm. And I got to do a lot of things, go a lot of places, and to this day, I still have a lot of great friends in Europe, mm-hmm. several in Canada, and, um, you know, you can't, like that saying, priceless, yeah. definitely applies. Yeah, no doubt about it, right? Uh, before we wrap this up, I'll get you some uh, some rapid-fire questions here. Um, look, you, you, you race against Hannah, you race against RJ, and even Bale and Stanton and those guys. You know, you spanned a lot of, a lot of years there. Um, best racer you ever saw or raced against? I should say, not never mind that you saw because you saw that you know nowadays you're at every race also. But lining up with them, we'll, we'll talk about a little bit of racing against some of the greats. Well, well, you know, every one of those guys you said, I mean, is a great, was a great racer, and and even today could probably throw their leg over a motorcycle and impress somebody of how fast they could ride the bike. So I can't single out any one of those guys, mm-hmm. because I rode with Hannah in the mountains, and he was incredible. I remember Dale passing me and riding with him at, at Unadilla at one of the nationals or maybe the GP, and I thought, how can that guy stay on the pegs and go through those ruts and do all that mm-hmm. without putting his feet down? Ricky Johnson, I remember riding with him on hard pack, being from the East Coast, and I thought, there's, there's no way a guy <laughs> can ride around on a blue groove dirt piece of soil right. and not fall down like he could. And, I mean, Jeff Stanton is just a bulldog. Right. So I can't say one of those is the greatest or the best. And, and you said it. I mean, I've watched Ricky and I've watched uh, James Stewart. And, and, you know, you go right down the list and, and Jeremy McGrath, and they were, you know, they're, they're unbelievable racers. And they got many titles and, and financially set. And, uh, hey, they're all great racers. Yeah. Uh, best track, your favorite track you, you've ever had, you Ooh, ever raced? Unadilla back in the day. Back in the day when it was grass, when you went out? When, when it was grass, there were white stakes, there was nothing else lining, and the grass was about two and a half to three feet tall. Yeah. And there wasn't a line in it, and you made your own lines. I know that. started riding. I'll tell you what, I remember seeing that on TV, but even by the time you watch it on TV, it was pretty worn in. You know what I mean? They didn't show practice on TV. Um, and then my first year I went to Unadilla was like 96 when I was a mechanic for the first year. And I went there and I'm like, this is Unadilla, you know, cause I just heard these stories and it was beat down by 96. It's come back. They've, they've left it alone. It's come back to where, you know, closer to what it was. But, uh, yeah, it's come, it's come back, but it's still, it's not right. what I remember. And I, I saw some video not too long ago of the GP there in 85 and it, it's amazing how, big the bumps and the ruts and yeah and all the, the track service was compared to today and yeah um incredible tracks did i see a photo of you riding an rm250 with a cr motor in it or am i dreaming no. okay you never did no. that okay no um, i did ride an rm250 right but not with a cr motor all right i thought i saw an old mo- mxa photo one time but um no. what was your best usgp ride uh, you did a bunch of them. I know that. Uh, was there one that stands out? Well, they kind of, the, the 1985 at Unadilla, mm-hmm. the 250 Grand Prix, yep. all shot at both motos and led. And I think I, I ended up being the top, one of the top Americans in either eighth or ninth overall. Right. Uh, that was a pretty, like, I was pretty happy with that. And the other kind of one that I really regret was the Steel City 125 Grand Prix. The one that um, Le- in Lachine slept in for? 88? Probably. Yeah. Um, I set fastest lap time in practice. Yeah. They wouldn't give it to me because they told me I didn't back it up. But <laughs> What? They didn't yeah. realize that I'm a local guy. I practiced there for I don't know how many weeks prior to it. They dissed the track. Right before time practice, I was the first person on the track, and I and the first lap around that thing was the fastest lap. And Duke Finch <laughs> came and told me, "You didn't back this up." I'm like, "I didn't know I needed to back yeah, it up." Yes, yeah, since when is that a rule? <laughs> right. So anyhow, I don't get the I don't get the number one gate pick. Okay. They put me at, towards the outside. I still hole shot the first moto, 
lead for around 20 minutes. And oh, wow. Yeah. I got tired. I was I didn't ride a 125. I wasn't used to riding a 125. Right. I just, by chance, got into the GP to race the 125. And, uh, you know, it's one of those coulda, shoulda, woulda deals. Yeah, they raced, I think, 87 and 88. They did 125 US GP there. Um, Carson, you could have won the GP. I mean, you think, I mean, you know, that's what I said. Coulda, right, woulda, right, shoulda. Right, but right. I had a great opportunity. Right. I missed a great opportunity. Let's put it like that. Yeah, yeah, really, right? Um, and I'm, I'm okay. This next question, I, I just made it up on the spot, and I, I could be forgetting somebody, and I probably am. But wh- who's the best Ohio racer ever? Am I missing somebody? I mean, why, why can't I think uh, of like any great Ohio? Well, there were some. There were some good guys in Ohio. I know. I mean, Garrett Gary Semix is from from Ohio. Yeah, Brock um, Sellards. Brock. Brock Sellers, Fred Andrews, um, you know, they're, I hey, think, um, where was Galen Moser from? I don't know. Maybe Ohio. Hey, Denny Schwartz. Yeah. Was from Ohio. So, you know, you guys can pick out of that right. that list of, of riders. Fast Freddy, another guy that's kind of like you, right? Like a little underrated, had a nice yeah. career, did a lot, had a lot of good finishes, and never really made it up to that next level, but. Fred Andrews was pretty fast. Yes, he was very fast. I mean, we, you know, luckily, Fred and I, I mean, we would travel together, we practiced together, mm-hmm. and we battled together on the track. And you know, it's one of those deals where you kind of fueled each other to, to like, do better. Or, you know, you get right. out on the track and you're like, yeah, there's Fred in front of me. I, I got to catch that guy. Or, you know, maybe you wouldn't, but, you know, you would, you would at least put the big effort into to beat your friend. You were never on rad and bad like him, though. No, I wasn't. <laughs> no, I wasn't. <laughs> um, well, hey, uh, Tom Carson, thank you, uh, thank you for doing this. I think, like I said, I, I, we're one of those guys. I just grew up seeing you in the magazines. You're always logging good results, never getting a ton of press, and never getting, you know, always being a privateer guy, that, like in that next level top privateer dudes. Which back then, like I said, didn't didn't do much for you. And then uh, I knew you raced in Europe all the time. I didn't really realize till I read that Racer X feature your hard cross career. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool to, to hear it from, from you. And like I said, you, you didn't make a lot of money, but man, you did some really cool things. So, but, but I had a, a life changing time, wouldn't give it up for anything. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm no regrets. Right on. Well, we'll see you at the races. If people want to see Tom, he's at every race, uh, at the, wearing the asterisk shirt over there by the rig and, uh, good luck with everything with the asterisk dudes. And, uh, thanks for doing this, Carson. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity to uh, come on here and tell it like it was. Right on. Thanks, Tom. All right. Thank you. See you. This has been the BTOsports.com podcast show presented by Fox Racing. Don't forget to check out some of our past shows, including motocross legends such as The Bad Boy, Rick Johnson. I looked down and my hand was junk. I mean, yeah. it was sitting over to the side. The tendons were jerking in weird places. And my biggest disappointment with Danny Sorbic is that he never said sorry. Because Danny and I were friends, and we've never talked since. Brian Lunis. Before the 500 event, Dave and I fly to Germany, go down to Stuttgart. There's this little shop out the back of the mall factory. We get our cylinders, take them back, and, you know, off we go. And, you know, we ran Nicosil Cylinders as a factory part for a handful of years before anybody ever saw it in production. Dave Arnold. And Magoo was all, you know how he did the big pancake thing? Right. And, right. and he's got the thing. He's completely laying on the gas tank trying to miss his tree. I mean, he would have gone even harder, jumped farther if that tree hadn't have been, you know, yeah. if, it, if it hadn't have been there. The Hurricane. I love the guy. I don't dislike. I think he's the greatest competitor this sport ever had. That absolutely 100% in my mind. I firmly believe that statement I said about these modern-day guys in Switzerland or Poland or Belgium on 45 minutes on the same bike. You're not beating Roger. Are you crazy? They're not doing it. If they think they're so much better nowadays than they were in those days, they're fools. They're different bikes, different times. The Beast from the East, Damon Bradshaw. It got to the point where I didn't want to leave home. And once I got to the race, I wasn't into it. If I wasn't going to give 100%, I'm not going to take their money. The working class hero, Doug Henry. It was definitely an emotional moment for me, just thinking to myself, that's it, you know, and it's, it's amazing the stuff that goes through your head in a short amount of time of 
the things that, you know, that I was going to miss. The Dogger Rhyme Machine. Until you really open your ears and you want to listen to what they're saying, it's like beating a dead horse. You know? And I know from personal experience, did anybody ever sit me down? Of course they did. Everybody did. Pro Circuits, Mitch Payton. There's two ways to make the money. One is you can sign for money, or two, you can earn the money. I'm a high believer in earning the money. I think they ride better when they earn the money. Seven-time Jeremy McGrath. I was so mad, like so disappointed and so frustrated that I pulled pit and I left. Every point counts. I could kick myself to this day for not just riding around in tents. It's been no problem. My, my ego got in the way, you know? The O Show, Johnny O'Mara. Stuff that you could you'd sit there if you didn't even want to ride it, you just wanted to just look at it all day. I mean, I got a chance to test all that. I like that era I was in. I really do. Search Pulp MX in the iTunes store to enjoy these and over 500 more great motocross podcasts. The days and the months and the years.